You know, one of the, the kind of the great gifts of my life, and I, I realize this isn't uh, everybody's story. In fact, the older I get, the more uncommon this story seems. But one of the great gifts of my life has been, for whatever reason, due to no luck of my own, um, I just have a great family. Like, God has given me an amazing mom, an amazing dad. I'm really close to my brother and sister and my in-laws. And, and the older I get, I realize that's a very rare thing. A lot of people just have really broken relationships with their parents or their families. And so a, a lot of times when I'm getting to know somebody, we'll start talking about, okay, tell me your story, where'd you've come, where you come from. And I can't help but talk about my parents just because they've had such an impact on me. So I'll say, you know, my mom is a, a school teacher and my dad's a pastor. And almost every time I say that, people are like, whoa, okay, you're a pastor, your dad's a pastor. Tell me the story. Like, what's he like? Are you guys a lot alike? And, and one of the things that I've realized over the years is that when I, when I want to tell somebody about my dad, I very rarely, like, just give them a list of facts. You know, like, here, here's five facts about David Jonathan Clayton Sr. Like, you know, like I, I, don't, I don't describe my father with facts. A lot of times when I want somebody to know his heart, I, I tell stories. Hey, this is what he's like. Like, you know, th th this is why I'm so close with him. And so earlier this week, I was just thinking, if I just had the opportunity to tell one story to let somebody know what my dad's heart is like, what's the story that I would tell? And this really random memory kind of popped up. In fact, if my dad was here, he'd probably hate that this is the story. He's like, all those years of being a great father, and that's the story you pick. But there's, there's this one story from high school that just... This, if, if I could give you a picture of my dad's heart, this is it. I remember um, when I was a junior in high school, I was kind of at the, just the height of my self-centeredness and, you know, the world revolved around me. Maybe you remember being in that place in your life. Maybe you're still there, you know. But I, I, I remember just kind of being in that place, the world revolved around me. And at the time, my dad drove this really old piece of junk car. It was a 1988 Mercury Grand Marquis. It had 300,000 something miles on it. It was falling apart. Uh, just to kind of describe this car, it was like 71 feet long. It was shaped like a box. And the, the interior ceiling was falling down. And so it was pushed up with multicolored thumbtacks. And so you'd sit and parts of the ceiling would touch the top of your head. And, and you know, as a self-centered teenager, there was nothing worse in life than riding around being seen in this car, you know. And I hated being seen with my dad in that car. He had this old car. The, the driver's seat wouldn't sit all the way up straight. And so he had this five gallon bucket that he would wedge behind the back seat and the front seat to have it sit straight up and a baseball bat. He would use a baseball bat. And we're like, dad, if you get rear-ended, you will be impaled. Like <laughs> that bat is gonna shove through your stomach. Like it's a terrible idea. But the, the, the worst part about the car was uh, my junior year, the driver's side window rolled down and it would not roll back up. It was it was permanently stuck. Rain or shine, the window wouldn't roll up. And so I remember the, the first day uh, that he was driving me to school after the window had broken, it was just a torrential downpour. And I'm like, oh, dear Lord, he's going to drive me to school in this. This is going to be embarrassing. So we go out, and he has this, this orange beach towel that he, he hangs over the window and shuts it in the door. And we're driving, and I'm just thinking, this is the end of life as I know it, which I know is so shallow, but that's just where I was. And and so we're, we're driving and we get about a mile away from school and we stop at a red light and dad opens the door and he pulls the beach towel out of the door and shuts the door. And I'm like, dad, what are you doing? Like, like what are you doing? And he said, did you think I was gonna drive you up to the front of school like with an or orange beach towel in the window? He's like, this car is bad enough. Like, I'm not gonna do that to you. And I'm like, oh, thank you, Lord. And he, he pulls me up to the, the front and he's, he's dressed for work, you know, shirt and tie and nice pants. And he's just getting soaked the whole time. 
And he pulls me right up to the front of the school. And uh, my, my baseball coach, who's like one of my heroes, was there directing traffic. And he said, Dave, why is the window open? Like, what's, what's wrong with you? And he's like, I'm just enjoying this weather. Stuck his arm out. And, and they both laughed. And, and, and I walked in. And, you know, for the next two years, that window was broken in that car. And every time it rained, it was the same story. Beach town, the window, until we get to the red light, he'd take it out. He'd pretend he wanted to enjoy the weather. And, and I, was, I, was, I was like, Dad, like, why don't you get the car fixed? Like, why don't, you get, and why don't you get the window fixed? Why don't you get a new car while you're at it? And I had no appreciation for the reality that um, dad was doing everything he could to make ends meet. He was saving up for my college. He was doing all these things. And, and, and he didn't want to drive that car, but he drove that car because he loved me. And that in, in the midst of my self-centeredness, like he was selfless. And, and I don't know how to, if, if I could just give you a picture of my dad. Here, here's been my dad over all the years. Like, when we are at our worst, he's at his best. Like when, when I was conceited, he was compassionate. Um, when, when I was rebellious, he was restorative. And it, and it wasn't until I began becoming a father myself that I began to understand the source of that love. I, I love this moment in Luke 15. It says that Jesus is surrounded by a mixed crew of people all over the board on their religious journey. It says there were tax collectors and sinners who knew they were religiously bankrupt. It says that there were uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law who did not know that they were spiritually bankrupt. And God looks out at all of them and he says, I don't know if you know this or not, but you all have a heavenly father and he's really good. And here's the story of humanity is that humanity has gotten distance from the father, but the father is better at finding you than you are at running. And so Jesus starts telling these stories, and it's the stories we've looked at over the last week. He tells a story about the sheep that isn't where it used to be, isn't where it's supposed to be, doesn't know how to get home, not because it meant to, but it just wandered away, got distracted, it got deceived. He, he tells a story about the coin that we looked at last week that, that got lost, not because it meant to be lost, but because somebody wounded it, abused it, forgot it, left it behind. And he tells a story this morning that's maybe the most popular story about these two brothers, these, these two kids of his that began to run. And I love this because Jesus is gonna say, this son gets lost not because he wandered off and, and not because he was dropped and wounded. This son gets lost because he chose to rebel. He says, but I wanna show you the father's heart when he's at his worst, when he's at his self-centered uh, high point. He says, I wanna show you what God is like. And he begins to tell this story. So let's just go through Luke 15 together. We're gonna start in verse 11. Open up your Bibles. It starts like this. It says, Jesus continued. He said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for the distant country. And so the story starts with this kind of alarming moment. There's this younger son, these two brothers, but the younger son comes to his dad, and he, he makes this really offensive statement. And he comes to him and he says, hey, here's the deal, dad, you're, you're worth more to me dead than you are alive. Like, one day you're gonna die, I'm, I'm gonna get my half of the land, I'm gonna get my half of the possessions, and the only thing that is keeping me from stepping into the life that I really want is the fact that you're still breathing. Can you give me what I'm gonna get at your funeral and let me get on with my life? And so for years, I'd, I'd read this. And I'd go, man, what, what an angry, what, what an arrogant, what a rebellious kid. And, and maybe those things are true, but the more you read the story, I, I'm convinced that this kid was not rebelling against his father, uh, maybe in that way. In fact, I think he was so self-centered, he didn't even understand that he was self-centered. 
I think he was so blinded by his own desires, his own pursuits, his own passions, his own dreams, that he had no idea how, how bad he was wounding his father's heart. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments, but have you ever offended somebody accidentally? Like, like you say something or you do something. Or you, I mean, I do this like every other hour. Like, you know, I'll, I'll say something to Sydney and hurt her feelings. I didn't even know I hurt her feelings. You know, it's, I think he's so locked in the world of himself that he had no idea like what, what it was that he's doing to his dad. And I think there's a lot of reasons we rebel. You know, maybe it was that he valued his father's possessions more than he valued his father's heart. Maybe it was that he was, he was so blinded by just the call to go find himself, that self-discovery that a lot of you are still chasing. Maybe it was just the pride of thinking that his perspective was the only perspective. We don't know what it was that, that drew him out of the Father's house, but what I believe is that all of those things were anchored in one common lie that started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and it's what so many of us still believe. And the lie is this, that in order to have the good life, you have to get away from the Father. A lot of us, we believe this lie somewhere along the way that, that the good life requires us to, to get away from the Father. And I think this is what lured the son out. I've used this illustration before, but it's just stuck with me over the years. It's the, it's the difference between a city dog and a country dog. You know, I grew up in the city, and so our family always had city dogs. And in the city, dogs are on leashes for a reason. Like, because city dogs, you know, they, they tend to bolt the moment the door is open or the fence is open or the, the leash is off. Like, because city dogs are convinced that all of the fun is somewhere out there. And so I remember when I was a kid, we had this dog, and every time the gate would get open, that dog would run. And I remember this one night in particular, my dad and I, we were out looking for the dog. And about halfway through the search, my dad said, doesn't that stupid dog know that we're the only ones that will care enough to feed it? Like, like why is the dog running? The, the dog had no idea. It's what city dogs do. They run. But we'd go visit my grandparents, and my grandparents lived out in the country, and country dogs are very different than city dogs. In the country, there's no leashes. There's no invisible fences. There's no metal fences. Like, the dogs can go wherever they want to go, but where do they always stay? Right by the house. Because the country dogs have been out in the woods. They've seen the wilderness. They've seen what's out there, and they know all of the good stuff is in the master's house. City dogs spend their whole life believing that the good stuff is somewhere out there. Country dogs know that all the good stuff is in the house with the father. Some of you have spent your whole life being city dogs. Just convinced the moment you left for college, the moment you came to Nashville, it was like, man, I'm gonna make a name, I'm gonna chase a dream. And some of you, maybe you did that in like outright angry rebellion, but I think some of you are probably just a lot like the guy in the story, just blinded by his dreams. Blinded by his perspective. And somewhere along the way, you bought the lie that the good life would require you to run from the father. So he takes off, verse 13, look at this. It says, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off to the distant country and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. You know, the distant country, it's interesting to me because the distant country, not only is it a place, but it's a disposition of the heart. Not only had this, this kid left physically where he'd grown up, but he had left behind his values, his morals, his habits, everything his parents had taught him. It's what some of you have felt and experienced that you've come to the city. That home is somewhere else, and you leaving home was not just a physical moment, but it was a disposition of the heart where you said, hey, I'm gonna rebrand, I'm gonna recreate, I'm gonna get about this in the way that I wanna get about this. 
Think about one of my good friends whose younger son a few years ago rebelled and he literally moved to Japan. And I, I would pray for this boy for years and I'd always ask my friend, hey, how's your son doing? And he'd say, Dave, his physical location is a picture of his spiritual condition. He has removed himself as far away into the distant country so that he could remove himself from everything that he's, he's known and been taught to do. And this, this is what the son does. It says, he says that he's gone to the distant country and it was there in the dis- distant country that he squandered his wealth in wild living. And we don't know how long this took. Like, we don't know if this was, you know, three months or three years or a decade, but this kid was gone in the big city. He was spending his inheritance. And here's what I want you to notice. There's this moment in between his rebellion and his ruin. And you know what the moment in between your rebellion and your ruin is? It's called pleasure. (laughs) It's called pleasure. That there's this space between the moment we run from the Father's house and this moment that that running brings us to ruin. And for a season, it's fun. If no one's ever told you this, sin is always fun at first. It's always fun at first. If somebody doesn't tell you that, they're a liar. Like, like it's fun for a season. And I believe this definition of pleasure that you see in verse 13, it's just a counterfeit pleasure. It's what the enemy does. It's what Satan does so well. He says, hey, I'm gonna sell you the lie that in order to be fulfilled, you have to leave the Father's house. I'm gonna allure you out here with this counterfeit pleasure. And the reality of counterfeit pleasure is that a lot like when walking through a foreign market and you buy some counterfeit sunglasses, counterfeits, they seem real, they feel real, you think they're real until they expose themselves for what they are. And this is what Satan does. Satan says, hey, I can give you all the pleasure that only God promises, but I'll give it to you more quickly. I'll give it to you more cheaply. Come and have now. And it's what the enemy does. And there's this moment where this young son, he, he finds himself in between his rebellion and his ruin. It's this moment of pleasure. And he's there and he's squandering his life in wild living. Verse 14 goes like this. It says, but after, look at this, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. And this is the way that Satan works. Satan says, I'm gonna take you all the way I'm gonna take you as far as you'll go. I'll keep you as long as I can keep you. I'll cost you as much as I can cost you. And the moment that happens, I'll pull the rug out from under you. This is the work of the enemy. He says, hey, I'm gonna take you to the distant country. I'm gonna help you burn every relational bridge. I'm gonna help you cross every moral boundary, every line. I'm gonna get you to the place where you never thought you would go. I'm gonna keep you longer than you wanted to stay. It's gonna cost you more than you wanted to pay. And the moment you're empty-handed, I'm gonna pull the rug out from under you. It's interesting to me in the story that the famine comes after all the money is gone. Because the enemy hates you enough to lure you out into the country, to bring you into the city, to to take everything you have and the moment everything is gone, to say, now I'm gonna expose you for for who you really are, for who I am. Verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomachs with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. So there's this moment where this young guy, like his life begins to fall apart and he hits this false rock bottom. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these false rock bottom moments in your life where things go poorly and you go, man, I'm the lowest I've ever been. But here's how you know it's a false rock bottom for this guy. And the reason it's a false rock bottom is because he's still convinced he can clean up the mess that he's made. He says, hey, I know I've squandered everything. I know I'm not where I used to be. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I don't know how to get home, but here's the deal. I've ruined my life and now I can fix my life. And this is a mantra of, uh, this is the mantra of the, the person who thinks they're at the bottom, but they're not quite there yet. 
The person who still lives with the illusion, hey, I can fix this. I can clean this up. I can save my reputation. I can keep my parents from finding out. I can keep my church, my small group, my house church from finding out. I can get this back together. And it says, so he goes and he hires himself out to do a job he would have never imagined doing. But I love the moment, verse 17. This is what we've been praying all, all month long just for our city. It says, but then he came to his what, church? What? He came to his what? He came to his what? He came to his senses. He came to his senses, like something began to awaken. I've been asking myself all week long, how many times do we lose our senses? How many times do you intentionally dull your senses? He says he comes to his senses. And he says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out, I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So make me like one of your hired servants. Have you ever noticed that when you screw things up, it doesn't just change your view of yourself, it changes your view of your heavenly father? You go, man, okay, maybe God would forgive me, but he would never treat me like his child again. Like maybe, maybe he would love me and bless me, but he never let me be all the way back in. This is what sin does to us. I saw this with one of my sons recently. He, he did something stupid and we had to punish him for it. And I go in to sit in his room. I'm like, hey buddy, are, are you okay? And he looks at me and he's like, he's like, I probably shouldn't even be your kid anymore. And I'm like, bro, that's drastic. Like, that's drastic. What, what's the deal? And I, you just, just realize that's the condition of the heart. That's the condition of the heart. It's, it's like embedded in you when you're young. Like, man, I messed up. The father could never welcome me back in. And so uh, I love this, verse 20, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I don't know if you memorize scripture, verse, verse 20. It says, so he got up and he went to his father. Guys, this is the invitation of humanity. Hey, you've wandered out of the house. Let's get back up. Let's go back to the father. And I wonder what this, this journey back would have felt like for this guy. I don't know if you've ever moved away from home, you've been gone from home, but you come back and have you ever noticed that sometimes you come back home after it's been a long time and it feels nostalgic, it feels emotional. You know, I go home to see my family and I'll, I'll get off on the exit and it's like, oh, that restaurant and that friend's house and that place we used to hang out in my school and all of these memories begin to flood your mind. But what would it have been like for this guy to have gone home after he had squandered everything? walks past his ex-girlfriend's house. He walks past his mentor's house. He walks past the neighbor's house. He's walking back in and he has no idea how his father's gonna receive him. But I love this, this moment in, in verse 20 because you've seen this all week or all month is um, the story's not about a lost son. The story's about a great father. The story wasn't about a sheep that got lost. It's about a shepherd that was better... <clears throat> Excuse me. It's about a shepherd that's better at finding than a sheep is at wandering. It wasn't about a coin that got dropped. It's about a Jesus that's better at restoring than the world is at hurting. And Jesus says this story is not about a lost kid. It's about a dad that is infinitely better at finding you, finding you than you are at hiding. And he begins to tell the story in verse 20. Look at this, I love it. I don't know if my voice is gonna make it. <laughs> but while he is still a long way off, his father saw him. I love this. He was still a long way off. 
His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no, no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, this is his moment. The son comes and says, hey, dad. And he begins the prepared speech. He begins that speech that he'd been rehearsing. I'm, not, I'm no longer worthy to be son. And I don't know what the dad did, but I'm just imagining he's like, shut up. Put his hand over his mouth. He's like, I don't want to hear your words. I love what he does. He says, quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I just want to give you a few pictures of the fathers. Yes. 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 I won't lie, at first I thought I was about to get attacked. <laughs> but I'm like, that's, that's the sound. That's, that's the sound of the gospel. I want you to see the Father's heart. It's the only story in Luke 15. It's the only story in, the, in Luke 15 where the Father doesn't immediately chase that which has been lost. Why? Why? Because the Father knows that if he shows up to the rescue before the Son tasted that the joy was counterfeit, he'd keep chasing the counterfeit joy. Sometimes the father waits and it's not because he's apathetic and it's not because he's angry. It's because he knows you need to taste the fleeting counterfeit nature of that which you've been chasing so you actually come home. And he waits for a moment, he waits. But he prays and he loves and he longs. The father starts by waiting, but it says the moment the son turns his heart back to the father, what's the father do? He just starts running. He's running and in their culture to run for a grown man to run, it was an undignified thing. They had to, to literally lift their robe up and expose their bare legs or chicken legs and run. And it's not what a father would do, but the father said, I don't care. I don't care who sees me, I'm gonna run. The father waits, number one. The father runs, number two. Number three, the father embraces. I love this. This kid still smells like alcohol and the pig pen and the prostitutes and the wildlife, and all of the stuff that he'd been in. And do you notice the father doesn't say, whoa, man, you smell terrible. Take a shower, and then we're gonna have a proper hug. What's the father do? He says he wraps his arms around him, gives him a big old kiss. I, I, I'm convinced the father was Italian, kisses him right on the lips, like just, I love you, man. I don't care who sees it. I'm glad you're home. You're home. The father, do you realize that in the mess of your life, God is not scared to show his affection to you? That when you're embarrassed of the Father, the Father is not embarrassed of you. He's not scared to be seen with you. He waits, he runs, he embraces. Number four, he restores. I think the whole gospel can be summed up in the three gifts that the Father gives the Son when he comes back. He comes back and he puts sandals on his feet. I love this picture uh, during the day, that, uh, during this kind of period in time where Jesus tells the story a servant would never wear shoes in the presence of their master. So you knew someone was a servant if they were barefoot. It's the reason when Moses came to the burning bush, what's the first thing God said to him? He said, he said hey, take your shoes off. God says, I want to define the relationship. You're coming to me as a servant. We're not equals here. But I love this moment. The son comes back covered in shame and he comes back to the father's house asking to be a servant. And what's the first thing the father does is he restores his sonship. He puts the sandals back on his feet. 
Guys, no matter how much you have screwed this thing up, in Christ, you have not forfeited your place in the family. And the son comes back in a mess. The father says, no, you're still my kid. He puts sandals on his feet. He puts a robe over his shoulders. This represented the father's righteousness, his goodness. Have you ever noticed that in those moments when you screw your life up, there's this temptation to believe that only you can clean it up? And hey, if you mess it up, you clean it up. And so we come back and it's like, hey, how do we clean ourselves up? How do we get presentable for the Father's house? And the Father says, let me take my best robe and let me cover up your shame with my goodness. Let me cover up your shame with my strength, with my love, with my blessing. Guys, this is the gospel. It's not that you've made yourself presentable for Jesus. It's that Jesus came to earth. He died for what you did in the distant country. He's been raised to life so that the robe can be put back on you. Sandals on the feet, a robe over the shoulder, and last but not least, a ring on the finger. Remember the way the story started? It started with this boy getting his inheritance and then squandering that inheritance. And he comes back, and as far as he knows, he goes, man, maybe my father will let me back into the house, but my future with the father's gone. Because the ring represented an inheritance. And I love, I love this moment where, where the father says, listen, your past your past has not destroyed the future that I still want to give you. Your wildness was not able to squander the future that God wants to give you. And some of you guys, you have ruined your life. Some of you have ruined your marriage. You've ruined your friendships. You've burned every bridge you know how to burn. But God is better at restoring than you are at destroying. And he says, your past is your past. Your future is my future for you. And he puts a ring on the finger. Some of you know people that have run, and man, they've, they've squandered it all. They've squandered it all. And I believe the father's just going, hey, will you be the kinds of people that will make it easy for younger sons to come home? When people think about this story, they always call it the prodigal son. You know what the word prodigal means? The word prodigal means to spend recklessly until nothing's left. That's what the word prodigal means. So we always say, oh, the prodigal son, because he spent recklessly until nothing's left. That's not actually true, because he came back to the farm, and the father had more than he could have imagined. The story is not about a prodigal son. It's about a prodigal father. It's about a father that was willing to spend everything, including his one and only son, Jesus, so that when you were still a sinner, Christ would die for you so that you could come back into the father's house. It's a prodigal father. It's a God who would be willing to spend ridiculously so that your future wouldn't be wasted in God. That's the story. Jesus, he looks out at you and he says, Dave told you about his earthly father by talking about an old broken car. He said, car. He said I'll do you one better. Here's what God's like. When you run, when you're at your worst, when you can't put the pieces back together, you come back home not as a servant or a second-class citizen, but as a son or daughter in the household of God. You come back not in your strength, your service, your works. You come back under the righteous blood of Jesus Christ, and your future is totally restored. Why? 
Dave, that sounds ridiculous. You're right, it does sound ridiculous, and it makes no sense. And here's the deal. I cannot overhype the goodness of the Father. My words pale in comparison to how kind he is. And so all month long, we're saying, hey, Lord, would you just wake up our city? Would you bring every rebellious child to their senses, and would you bring them face-to-face with the Father's love? And it's what I'm praying for you. And so here's, here's what we're gonna do this morning before we, before we take communion together. I wanna invite you right now, get in groups of two or three, and we're gonna take a couple of moments, and we're gonna pray for the people in our life who we know and love who have been running from God. And you don't have to share their name. You can share their initials. You can pray for people in the city, whatever you wanna pray, but let's get in groups right now. And first, we're gonna start by praying for those in the city and those in our life that have been running. And then I wanna give you an opportunity for those of you that are in this room and you've been running to come back to the Father. So let's get in groups right now. Let's spend a few minutes praying out loud and then I'll call us back in. Father, I love you, and I just thank you for these people that we've been praying for. God, we thank you that you love them more than we do. Father, I thank you for the way you love this city. I thank you for the way that you love us. God, I just ask that you would, just like Paul prays in Ephesians 3, that you would strengthen us in our innermost being by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we would be able to grasp how high and how wide and how long and how deep is the love of God for us. God, would you pour your love out in our hearts? 
God, would you help us? Would you help us to see you as you are? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.